So if you want to grab a Bible and, and reach for that, Esther uh, chapter 1 today, beginning this new series of Esther, the Unseen God. Esther, an incredible woman, one of only two women to have Bible books named after, one, after them, the other one being Ruth. Esther, also a magnificent drama that rises from a royal court in crisis that we've already heard about today. In fact, Esther is a drama that is actually still performed annually in Jewish communities. It's a bit like a pantomime. They do it once a year with the goodies to cheer and the baddies to boo to celebrate the Jewish feast of Purim. Esther is a gripping story, and today I simply want to set the scene for what is to come over the next number of weeks in a very different world and time and place. First of all, we want to look today at the backdrop to Esther. The backdrop to Esther. The first thing we read is the timing of this book. You'll see it there in Esther 1 and verse 1. It's the time of Xerxes. Xerxes is certainly the Greek name for Ahasuerus and was king over 127 promises from Persia and Media. In other words, his kingdom stretched from northeast Africa right across the Middle East, Iran and Iraq. It was huge. Most of the action, though, in the book of Esther centers around the king's palace and indeed the throne room in Susa, the capital of Persia. It's also distinctive in that all of the action takes place a thousand miles east of Israel, far from the promised land, like we were saying to the boys and girls. And in that, we see the stark reality, which is a second point we've got to take on board, of the displacement of the Jews. Israel as a nation had defied her God. Oh, they'd received many warnings from prophets and preachers. Israel was God's own people who'd chosen to go their own merry way. And they'd stuck their collective fingers in their collective ears and said, No, we're fed up listening to God and going his way. And as a result, God's judgment came. Israel was defeated in 597 BC. And then by 586 BC, the magnificent Jerusalem that they all adored fell into enemy hands. And having been carried off as exiles into the east, they then became a servant workforce to the Babylonian kings and people. But then things changed again. This is what we've got to get our minds around a a little bit today. As another king came and conquered the Babylonians. His name was Cyrus the Mede. We read about him in books like Isaiah as well. And incredibly, he was a very kind king. And he said to all the peoples that they'd taken from all around the empire, you can go back. You can go back to your own nations, your own people. You can go back and rebuild if you want. But incredibly, there was a minimal response from the Jews. Hardly any of them went back. They were so engulfed and surrounded with the culture, the pagan culture, they didn't want to leave it. With every passing generation that came, the thoughts of Israel and Jerusalem, and their God faded into what we might call folklore. There was a growing disconnect between where they were now and what they'd been taught growing up. Esther gives us a a little window into the lives of God's people who were no longer living God's way. They maintained their status culturally as Jews, but there was very little Jewishness about them. Their physical distance from all that God had promised them reflected their spiritual distance from all that God had promised them. And in that, we note the first danger today. How easy it is to become cultural Christians and get very mixed up in what it means to be a Christian. Wearing a suit, 
going to church, playing the flute on the 12th, sitting in your same pew, paying into the church finances, being nice to your neighbors. None of that makes you a Christian any more than gazing at the stars makes you a spaceman. We have become utterly confused as to what it is to be a Christian, a Protestant in Northern Ireland. So entangled by flags and dates, which political party you vote for, or dates you march on, never mind which church you go to or where you sit or what kind of person you are. We have become like the Jews in exile. We've just become like the culture around about us. We think we know who we are, but we've left God in the sidelines. Note God's judgment on those who simply claim a connection to God. Do your Protestant thing. But if you leave Christ out of your Christianity, well, we too will be judged. Secondly, in this story, let's meet the actors. Who are the star players who come on stage? The man who dominates the stage in these chapters is the mighty King Xerxes. He was a military strategist and a very successful one. And we know that he loves his army so much because look at verse 3. Who does he bring in to have the special feast? Who does he bring in right in the throne room? It says in our circle, the army. And he has a very close relationship with his troops, which was estimated to be around 14,000 troops. But on top of that, he had 10,000 troops who were known as the immortals. Well, just think Sylvester Stallone and Bruce Willis in every Hollywood film you've seen, only multiply them by 10,000. And those are the kind of guys he surrounds himself with. Xerxes also lived in a lavish palace building. His throne room was grand. His kingship was secure. He pleasured himself with any woman of his choosing, woman from every corner of the empire. And even look at verse 6. I think verse 6 is a stunning verse. Even look at his garden. There aren't too many kings in the Bible to get their gardens mentioned. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material and silver rings and marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on the mosaic pavement and so on. Do you know that archaeologists have also found on that very same pavement, forget public realm stuff out there, on his pavement, <laughs> as you walk the streets of Susa, it had this inscription written by Xerxes, the great king, the king of kings, the king of lands occupied by many races, the king of this great earth. Here was a man who didn't suffer from an inferiority complex anyway. But also in this opening chapter, we're introduced to Queen Vashti. Her appearance is short and fleeting, but look at verse 11. She was lovely to look at. She was a beautiful woman. And we see her entertaining the wives and mistresses of the men of state at the same time as the king's banquet. Read that in verse 9. So we've met the actors. But then we come to this opening scene. And the first thing we notice is the pomp. The pomp. The author of Esther gives us such a description of the palace during these days of feasting. It actually feels that you could be there. You can almost... Feel the breeze blowing gently across those curtains. You can almost feel like you could reach for one of the goblets being passed. Did you read that no two of the goblets in the, the, the palace were the same? They were all unique, incredible. They weren't getting, you know, six for the price of four in all the January sales. They were all unique. You hear the clattering of the goblets, the babble of the excitable conversations. 180 days of feasting. It must have been some empire if they could say to everyone, take 180 days off work. You know, wouldn't that be great if they announced that on Monday for all of us now that the assembly's back? They can do some work and let the rest of us have a rest. 180 days of feasting, thrown open, great and small. 
a lavish display of wealth and luxury. And not only that, they come to the end of the 180 days, and what did they say to Just to celebrate the 180 days, let's have seven more days, just to top it off. It makes Posh and Bex's party seem like a potluck supper. It was excessive and marvelous and splendid. But on the seventh day of those extended celebrations, we see this mighty king, now merry with wine, giving a command that creates the flashpoint in the opening scene. He calls on his wife to appear before the men in the citadel of Susa. Do you see how she's to come? He says, bring her, and she's to wear the royal crown. The Hebrew actually says, she was only to wear the royal crown. This was Xerxes' way of displaying her as his prized possession, as his trophy wife. Men, he says, you've seen my wealth now and my extravagance displayed in full. Now look at my wife. She is the most beautiful woman in the palace and in this kingdom, and she is mine. He longs that the hundreds of men gathered were left not just lusting after his power, but also after his wife. And Vashti very wisely says, From the little we know about her, she immediately gains our respect. She refuses to appear as someone's prized possession. Her beauty was her own, only to be shared with her husband. She refuses to feed the fantasies of these other inebriated men. The scene then turns sour. Surrounded in all his pomp, Xerxes' pride is pop. Someone has dared to say no to him. So what does that he do to salvage his pride? That's our next thing. What does he do to salvage his pride? The mighty king is shattered by Vashti's refusal and we find him scrambling around to make a response with his civil servants. That's what verses 14 and 15 are all about. They've never had anyone say no to him before, so how do you respond? Now, Mamukin is the man who seems to step up here, isn't he? And whether Mamukin is going through a difficult period in his own home life with his wife, we don't know, but his reaction is a classic overreaction. He sets the incident in the wider context. Look at verses 16 and 17. He says, oh, this is going to affect every other man and the rest of the nation. Everyone's going to, all the women are going to start saying no to their husbands. And the thought of female jokes at the expense of every male in the country horrified them, verse 18, and proved sufficient incentive for a royal decree. He had been stung by this public humiliation. It dented his pride. And so in the midst of what you might call a smoke-filled, alcohol-induced cabinet meeting, the decree was made, and this was to be translated into many languages and distributed throughout the whole of the empire. It's a bizarre picture of punctured pride and male pomposity whose testosterone had been tested. There was nothing particularly regal about his response, was there? Never mind the throne room of Susa. Xerxes could easily, could easily have been a plastered man who beats his wife up on a Saturday night and then expects her to make dinner for him on Sunday. Or even a proud man who speaks ill of his wife and abuses her verbally during the week and then seals him to church looking like a saint. Or, let's be honest, any of us men who use cheap sexist jokes under the cover of male authority at the expense of the dignity and call to love and serve and be sacrificial towards our mothers, sisters, or wives. That's the shame. That's the kind of hazy, ill-judged response that Xerxes made. We must never let whatever biblical convictions we hold dear in the light of Scripture about male authority or female responsibility to ever make us do down the other sex. How dare we? 
Xerxes' hasty decision comes back to haunt them. Look at the start of chapter 2, verse 1, where we read very clearly there that he is missing Vashti. Sometime later, he comes to his senses and realizes what a complete horlicks he's made of the whole situation. How he longed for the comfort of wise Vashti after his fury has subsided. Friends, let me put out a word of warning to us here. Don't make decisions and don't speak words when you're in a rage. For once spoken, there's no going back. We've seen the first scene acted out. The dramatic events, the powerful king, the stunning queen, the six months of celebration and the tragedy of a shattered relationship. But what's going on? What is really going on here? Why did God allow a story like this, which is more like Emmerdale or Kardashian, to make the cut in the Bible? You know, read every verse and you will not find the Lord's name anywhere in the book of Esther. He is the unseen God in this book. There's not even a hint of God or is there? Because notice finally with me today, the director, the director. Esther 1, verse 1. Hope you've still got your Bible there. Some of your versions, if you have it in front of you, might say, now it came to pass. Other versions might put it, now this is what happened. Which indicates, even with those few short words, that this is a continuation of a story. It means that something has happened before. Now this came to pass, or now, this is what happened, which means that something has happened before, and this is just part of a bigger story. It's as if the reader was waiting for what happened next, the next installment of the series. Now it came to pass. Something has gone before, and something is yet to come. This is only part of the story, and it's not finished yet. And in terms of the Bible, this story is central to the continued unfolding work of God in his world working out his purposes. Where has the Bible taken us up to this point so far? Most of God's people were far from home and far from God. Yet this was a people that God had promised to bless. They'd received bountiful provisions in a promised land, but they had failed to live up to their calling as a servant people, a people who were to be a light to the nations, to draw people to the one true living God. But they had failed. They had failed. And in their adulterous lives, giving themselves to everyone apart from God, but in his grace, God wasn't finished with them yet. Is that remarkable? After thousands of years of rebellion against God, he still didn't turn his back on his people. Even through a pagan people, a pompous, mighty, earthly king, God was beginning to work out his plan. So when we see Vashti exiting stage left, you need to look at verse 19 and suddenly realize that God is at work. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. One door crashes shut, but suddenly a door swings open for a new queen. Doesn't that just remind us? Who's boss? Who's king? Who rules this world? For in chapter 2, the search for a new queen begins, and we're going to look at that next week. And it will fall on Esther, the Jewess, 
one of God's not-to-be-forgotten people. Through her, the Jews will be saved, from which the Savior, Jesus, will ultimately come. We could truly say Esther was the girl who saved Christmas. Without her, there'd be no baby in the manger. Without her, there'd be no Christ on the cross. Xerxes is a mighty king, but he's in the hands of an eternal God. Rotten, ill-conceived laws passed by a drunken king, but God is still on the throne. We hear of unrest in the Middle East, governments rattling their swords. We're gripped by international disasters. We watch the impact of a new government and await a new budget. We hear of proposed redundancies. We face illnesses and anxiety. We hear of sudden deaths due to unexplained circumstances. We hear of churches broken by scandals and countries in crisis. From Tehran to our kitchen sinks, from number 10 Downing Street to the number 212 bus, from the wards of Antrim Hospital to the hockey pitches of Meadowbank, God is still on his throne. From those sitting in Union Road today, God is still on the throne. No matter how things might seem, even how you might feel, no matter where our world appears to be heading, no matter what catastrophic laws are being passed, God is still on the throne. You may go through another week doing the same old thing, eating the same old cereal, driving the same old road, watching the same old programs, doing the same old daily routines around the yard, just another day and you mightn't feel it or you mightn't seem to think that God's interested or involved. Most of our days begin with this no big deal predictability about them. Just think, at the same time that Esther was getting up that day in her ordinary Jewish girl in Persia life, Xerxes was blowing his top in the palace and the search for a new queen was underway. I want you to recognize this one big point today that we call God's sovereignty. Because he can use a king's brutality and a Jewish girl's beauty to bring his purposes about. Let's get out of our vocabulary and our prayer life that this is a day of small things. For God, because it's not. There's never a day of small things with God. We just mightn't see where he's working or how he's working. Let's get that out of our mind and our prayers. God is always up to something. He's always working in us or for us. He's always saving and rescuing and lifting and leading every day all around us, close to home in our hearts and across the world in the rubbish dumps of India or the shanty towns of Rio. He is always at work. And like I referred to in prayer earlier, in the one place in the world where there is meant to be no church, the place, Iran, where there's all, all these issues, it's the fastest growing church in the world. He's always up to something. He's always moving and pushing and rearranging and carrying and creating and recreating all for his purposes. Our God is not out of touch. His methods might look different from ours, but he's not out of touch. As Isaiah 55 reminds us and brings us back down to who we are and who he is. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your way, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Oh, he can and does use unlikely people. Incidents, accidents, feasts, furies, dismay, celebration to bring about his purpose. I mean, would you have chosen a murderer with a stammer to rescue an entire nation from Egypt? No, we wouldn't. 
Would you have chosen an unmarried teenage girl to be the mother of Jesus? No, no, I wouldn't. Would you have chosen an educated, Jesus-denying fisherman to be the spokesman for the resurrection? No, I wouldn't. Then again, would any of us have chosen a rugged cross and a brutal Roman death for the Son of God as our means of salvation? No. But God did. Because he's sovereign. And he alone is God. His ways are not our ways. He is always at work, and amazingly, in the midst of all, he is working for his people. Let me ask you, are you discounting the significance of your days? Are you maybe just sighing with boredom? How can you cope with all that you live with, the kids you can't handle, the marriage that lacks cohesion, the pressures that seem to have no purpose? God's hand is not short that he cannot save, nor is his ear so heavy that he cannot hear. Whether you see him or not, he is at work in your life every moment. Whether you're in the shadow or the sunlight, all are part of his divine purpose. And we might cry out and scratch our heads and ask, why? Why is this? Why now? Why me? How did this come about? And the answer is, I do not know. But how much worse would it be if there was no purpose to our sadness or no plan behind our suffering? If there was no God who was seeking to work all things out for our good and his glory. If God was not there, there would no one to be eternally caring of. Life would be purposeless, rudderless, helpless, hopeless. He is just as involved in the mess and the mundane as the miraculous. The stories in God's history book pulsate with significance for us. He is a sovereign God at work amid the scenes of state and empire in the world. His hand is at work in what appear to be God-forsaken, God-forgotten places. Only then can we bring our broken world to the broken world, the hope that it so desperately needs, that there is a God. And he has intervened. And he can do something about that brokenness in the person of Jesus Christ. And praise God today, we do not worship a king who is drunk on his own wealth and liable to uncontrollable rage or knee-jerk reactions. No, we worship one who sits on an eternal throne, who is gracious and patient, slow to anger and full of mercy, who offers salvation to his people because he was the sacrifice of the sins of his people. The lamb who sits on the throne, before whom all nations from across Africa and the Middle East owe their allegiance. But the lamb who was slain and by whose blood purchased a people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. So as we finish today, Will your, now it just so happens of this week, lead you to worship the one who rules over the just so happens? How much safer do you feel knowing that in the humdrum of life, as you walk through the fire of affliction, to see even with weak and blinking eyes of faith that his loving hand holds on. His fingerprints are all over history past, present, future. Because all of this and all of us are part of his story.